Hello, Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. Our guest today is the uh, newly elected president of the Distinguished American Society of Golf Course Architects, Mike Bentusky. And before we proceed, I want to thank our sponsors, the Andersons, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Flow. Mike, welcome to uh, the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Now, you're in the Midwest, right? Out in the Chicago I, area? Yes, I am. Outside the Chicago area. So the first question everybody wants to know in the industry is, how do you become a golf course architect? Everybody thinks it's the greatest job in the world. Because unlike superintendents, you can sleep in on weekends. <laughs> and you don't have to work 100 days in a row, you know, the 100 days of hell. So uh, how do you get, how did you become a golf course architect? That is true. And actually, when I was growing, I grew up playing golf, obviously, as as many of us did in the industry. And it was just something that as at a young age playing golf, and then my parents came home from the US Open at Medina in 1975 with the program. And it had an outline, you know, of how of the golf holes and how the pros should play the golf holes. And it kind of got me interested in the strategy of golf. And again, being a, a junior golfer and playing in tournaments, I just got more enamored by that as far as, um, you know, how do you play a golf course? Then how do you design a golf course? And how do you design a golf course to make it fun to play and make it strategic? And at that point, you know, I was about 11 years old and I decided, you know what, I wanted to do something in golf. I wanted to be outdoors for a living. I want to do something like that. And actually, you know, you know, golf and a buddy of mine thought about becoming a superintendent because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do something in golf as well. And he actually ended up becoming a professor in turf management, but you know, he still went into the, into the turf and the end of the profession. So it was just something that I wanted to do. So I kind of geared myself towards becoming a golf course architect. And I studied, you know, how do you become a golf course architect? And I went to school in landscape architecture at Iowa State University, which also has a great turf program, as everybody knows. So, and um, so from there, I just kind of got my start. I met Bob Loman when he was working at Cedar Rapids Country Club, because I was working on the grounds crew there. Because again, being a golf course architect, I thought, well, I wanted to learn how to maintain a golf course. How, you know, what goes into maintaining a golf course and how can you design a golf course to make it a little bit better for them to maintain the course, to, you know, work with the superintendents as far as how can I make your job a little easier as well, besides making the golf course more fun for the golfers. Um, so then at that point, you know, I graduated and I got a degree in, in landscape architecture and went on to work for Bob and become a golf course architect. And I joined the ASGCA then in 26 years ago in 1997. It was a dream of mine as well. So it was just, again, it was just kind of a culmination of, you know, things that I wanted to do and then how could I accomplish that? And it's, and it's worked out fairly well. I'm, I'm happy doing the job. It's, it's a great job. How has uh, your job changed in the last 26 years? Because uh, you started when there was a golf boom, people were hiring, and then things kind of got slow, and now it's picking up again. Um, so if you could kind of concisely sort of summarize the difference between then and now. It, 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 has, it has changed. I guess one of the big changes that we've seen is there's a lot more smaller firms out there. You know, we don't have the large firms. When I joined, when I started working in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, we had like four or five architects on our staff. So there was a lot of us spreading the projects around. So now obviously there's, you know, the projects have, have thinned out because there's not as many new golf courses going in. It's all been renovation work. 
over the past, you know, for me over the past 18 years since I started my own firm. Um, so it's kind of changed in that regard that we've geared up more towards the renovation end of how can we, you know, improve the golf courses that way. Um, so again, it's more of the, the smaller firms that are out there. A different way of people that are, you know, that we're building golf courses now. You know, when I started out, you'd be out there, you'd be throwing 100 stakes out in the ground in order to lay out your features and to lay out everything. Now with GPS and all that, working better with the contractors as far as getting them plans, AutoCAD plans, plans that they can put into their computers then and then put on their equipment in order to help shape the golf course. And it's just a different way of doing it as well. Um, you know, still doing the detailed plans, but then at the same time being out in the field with them and working with them and working with the superintendent again, especially on these renovations, because I don't want to create something that makes it harder for them and where they got to go back to their club and their bosses and say, hey, I need a new equipment or I need something new here. And then they look at us and say, well, why did we design it that way? Um, I think architects for a long time had or even cultivated a certain reputation as being, you know, well, who are you to ask, you know, how many golf courses have you designed? Uh, you know, uh, and sort of the, the freewheeling artist. That's changed a lot. Um, what goes on, maybe you could even describe a typical uh, renovation project in terms of the interaction at what point do you start engaging with the superintendent and, uh, you know, when does it go well and when does it maybe not go so well? Uh, many times I'm engaged with the superintendent, really almost the first meeting. They're sometimes usually the first ones that would call me and, and say, and typically it's, hey, I got your name from somebody else. They thought you'd be a good fit working here at our club. Would you come out here? I'm working with Adam Rose over at Point of Woods Golf and Country Club. They're in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And we're going to be doing a bunker project this fall. And I've been working with him for three or four years. And it started out, he called me up. He said, hey, could you come over and look at this? We're looking at redoing our short game area. And, you know, you were recommended, you'd be a good fit. Would you come over? So I went over, I met with him. I met with Adam. We talked about it. I met with their golf pro, Matt, and we looked at the area. And it just went from that and evolved into, you know what, instead of looking at just the short game area, could we look at the whole golf course? And we could, could we address that and look at other areas on the golf course? And we've done that. We put in an underground um, drainage system throughout the fairways. We just redid their short game area last fall with some new bunkers and new greens. And now this coming fall, we're going to be do redoing their bunkers as well on the golf course. So it's it's working with him throughout these three, four years now of kind of saying, how can we update the golf course? And, and it's gotten easier for me then to get to know him over the years. Okay, how do you manage things? What what can we do to make, again, make it easier for you? Or what would you like to see out here that, that you know that there's some problems or some issues and how can we solve those? So it really starts right from the beginning. And uh, do you have to compromise the artistry and the creativity in order to make you know a bunker maintainable or manageable? You know, do you have to flatten it out, drop the the edge, maybe, maybe not make it as vertical? How does that work in terms of your consideration? It's gotten easier due to the technologies that are out there now, the capillary concretes, um, all the other systems that are out there that we can use in order to, one, help keep, you know, the sand stabilized on the face. In the past, it used to be, I'm tired of having sand wash off my face. I don't want to do that anymore. Let's just do a grass down bunker. I'd rather mow grass than push sand is what a lot of superintendents would always tell me. So now it's gotten different that way where it's like, okay, we can flash the sand up. We don't have to worry about the washing. 
we don't have to worry about that. Um, so for me, I always go into it. You know, I try to get a feel for the golf course, um, different ones. I worked with Chuck Barber over at St. Charles Country Club here in, in the Chicago area. And they had a golf course that was part Tom Bendelo, part David Gill, because they had moved the clubhouse and rebuilt seven golf holes at the same time. So he said, well, I want to make it all more consistent. And the bunkers were all different. We said, well, what? let's go back. They liked the, the, uh, the Tom Bendelo aspect of their golf course so we went back to that we brought the grass down we did more flat sand bunkers than in that regard mm -hmm. because that's what he was he was wanted to see on the golf course as well and he knew he could maintain it at the same time so for me it's kind of you know I I listened to the superintendent okay what would you like to do with your maintenance how do you do that and then what can we do on the golf course in order to to make it that way whether it be you know, a flatter sand or bringing the grass down a little bit more or bringing the sand up in order to highlight the features a little bit better. So I'm I'm up more for a compromise. I don't go in with a set ideas of, hey, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. Um, the um, planning process has changed a little bit too, I gather, in terms of lead times, uh, availability of contractors, availability of, um, of pipe and and sand and, and, and sod, really. Can you talk a little bit about that and what superintendents need to anticipate when they're thinking about a project? That has become the hardest part of our profession, I think, right now over the last couple of years. And I worked on a couple of projects um, this past spring, about eight months ago, um, working with Jason Tresmer over at Beaver Hills in Cedar Falls, Iowa. They wanted to do a bunker project. And we ended up timing it again for this fall for 24, but we bid the project out in the spring here of 23. So about 16, yeah. 18 months ahead of time, just to line up a contract and make sure we get on their schedule. Cause so many are booking up 18 months, almost two years out on their projects just because of the abundance of work that's out there. So it's been an education as far as talking, not only the superintendents and they get it, they understand it because they've had lead time issues with getting equipment and everything else as well. And then it's educating the club to say, okay, we're going to have to think about this 18 months out and plan for your budget that way in order to put everything in process. And a lot of people have been open to that because again, um, since COVID in 2020, people have seen that there's been supply chain shortages and people know what's been happening out there that I think they'd become a little bit more open to it. It's like, okay, yes, we need to do that. Um, I'm bidding a project here starting next month um, in Rockford that's going to be bit, that's actually going to be built in the fall of 25. So we're looking at, again, 18 months out in order to do something. Yeah, that's a, that's a big change over the years. Um, when you're working with superintendents, uh, um, I mean, you're, I assume pretty good at looking at piece of land and figuring out potential rerouting and figuring out the whole, what is a superintendent who knows his property? What do they bring to the, uh, to the equation here in terms of understanding a, a golf course? They bring out the deficiencies in, in the piece of land. Um, if there is some, whether it be drainage, um, whether it be areas, you know, shade issues that we have out there and say, okay, yes, I do have shade issues in this area. Um, if it's irrigation, again, they can look at it. Okay, I have deficiencies in that regard. They really look at it that way. And then they also realize how the golfers are playing the golf course, and they can see that as well and see, you know, how, how are they playing the course? 
Um, how would it help me to improve the maintenance of that, to improve their their playing of the golf course as well? Um, so again, it's really what they can bring to me is, again, just kind of highlight those deficiencies. Where can we help them out? Um, where are their issues on the golf course in that regard? Is it your experience, this is always an issue that comes up, is it your experience that it's better to have a superintendent who plays golf, not necessarily a great golfer, but at least playing golf? I mean, there are quite a few who don't because obviously they want to get home and they're tired of looking at the office. But uh, what's your sense of that component of the relationship? Uh, I've worked with, with both types and I think, I think there's pluses and minuses on both. I, I do agree that, I, you know, I, I like to see a superintendent that goes out there and plays the golf course. Um, in some regard, I think that does help them as far as being able to see how does the golf course play, but I get it when they're out there playing it, then they got members coming up to them saying, Hey, what about this? What about this? And you can't enjoy it. I run into the same issue when I go out and play a golf course is I don't, play I feel sometimes I don't play my best game because I'm looking at the golf course or looking at what could get changed on a golf course even if it's one that I'm not working on I always look at what could make this property better um so I I can get that and I see why why a lot of them don't want to play the golf course or at least don't want to play their golf course they might play other golf courses at the same time um so it it does help because it does give you a little bit more knowledge as far as especially on the greens when they're saying yes this green is this way and this green, you know, it is a little bit too steep here, a little too fast over here, or how can I improve that at, at the same time? Um, so it, it does help, but I don't say it's a requirement to say, hey, we well, need to have you play the golf course in order to know what it's like. They're out there, like you say, they're out there every day and they don't want to be there at six o'clock at night playing it at the same time. Yeah, it's always amazing. A lot of golfers, members at clubs at least, think that their superintendent ought to be out there raking bunkers rather than, you know, what's he doing playing golf, you know? so Right. Uh, if I was a Greens chairman, I'd want to play golf with my superintendent. I want them out there saying, okay, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you ever encounter, I come across this occasionally, the, the superintendent who's, uh, oh, I know how to do that. I can I can build that. I, I, I can operate a dozer. I've got a guy here on staff. I mean, is there a a boundary or a, a an area where you find it's okay for that to, for a superintendent or crew to build rather than going out to a contractor shaper there is actually i work on a project right now that i've been working with uh, i work with the lake county forest preserves here in the chicago area and i work with mark pettigue and russ chamberlain they both manage the golf courses there and we're working on it's their traditional course at countryside which is built back in the 20s and 30s by an unknown architect and we even have old aerial photos that we've pulled up on it. And they have on staff, we're able to do the projects in-house. And we do about two or three green surrounds each fall. I'll come out, I'll put some plans together, and then I'll make some site visits. They're only 45 minutes away, so it's easy process there. But they've been able to do the work in-house. And we've been able to conquer, like I say, two or three greens a year. Um, we've finished the back nine. We're now back to working on the front nine, just the way things have worked out. And so there are some where I, and I've done it in the past and I'm not afraid to do it, to work with them and say, how can we do something in-house in order to, to get it done? Because otherwise they just wouldn't be able to get the project done at the same time. And at the beginning, it's a little bit of a learning curve. And I just spend a little more time out there with them because I've seen how bunkers are being built or see how things can be built. And I can kind of try to explain it to them. But again, it's more of a, of a process at the beginning of getting that put in place 
But then once you're used to doing it and once they know what to expect each year when we get into it, it does make the project flow a little bit faster and they're able to get it get it built the way we would all like to see it built. Yeah, I would imagine for Greens expansion and maybe even building tees, that's not that complicated. But when you're shaping with a bucket or a you know, a little bit something like an excavator, then it gets, uh, well, it's a lot to handle. And then, of course, the only person to blame is the guy who did it. So now they're putting liability on themselves. Right. Exactly. And, that. and then the other um, aspect that comes in that people forget about, especially when you're talking with, oh, can we do something in-house? Can we do it in-house? It's like, well, you have a staff here that's taking care of 150 acres here of golf. And now you want them to handle a project as well and maintain the golf course to the standards you want it during that period of time especially when we get into fall where a lot of players, you know, it's still a great time to play golf in the fall. Sometimes it's the best time to play just the way the conditions of the golf course can be. And to say that we're going to take four or five guys off of the, the working on the course in order to do a project, something's got to give there. So it's, again, it's that education part with the membership as well to say, yes, we can do that, but you're going to have a little bit of deficiency somewhere else given that time. And it's no different than any other project where you're going to bring in a contractor. A contractor is going to be going 100 miles an hour all around the golf course in some cases. So you're going to have a lot of areas that are going to be torn up over certain periods of time. So um, it's just that, you know, and we rely on the superintendent. They're in there with their greens meetings every month. They're in there talking to the membership to help to educate them to say, yes, this is what's going to take place. Just remember, it's going to be, you know, it's no different than doing a renovation on your house. It's going to be a couple months of inconvenience, but at the end, you're going to be happy with the product. It's going to be a better product for the golf course. And by this time next year, you're going to be glad that we did it. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good analogy because every kitchen renovation I've ever heard of takes three months longer. You're eating out of pizza boxes and uh, microwaves. Uh, I went uh, through one a couple of years ago and it was the same way. My wife and I still talk about it, but we're happy with our kitchen. So we look back at it that way. Yeah, um, we're going to take a pause, uh, Brad Klein here for uh, Turfnet Renovation Report with our guest, Mike Benkuski, and our sponsors. Uh, we're grateful to the Andersons, Golf Preservations, and Capillary Flow. The Capillary Bunker System keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences, all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash turf.
from fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. We're back with the TurfNet uh, renovation report. Our guest uh, today is the uh, president of the uh, American Society of Golf Course Architects, Mike Venkusky, and uh, Brad Klein here uh, speaking with him, and courtesy of our sponsors, the Andersons Golf Preservations and Capillary Flow. Mike, the American Society of Golf Course Architects might be the most exclusive golf club in the world, harder to get into than the RNA or Augusta or Cypress. Um, and now you get to wear that spiffy uh, tartan Ross uh, red and black jacket all over the place, like a walking billboard, huh? It is a walking billboard. It's you go down to the GCSAA show, and you you do get a lot of looks when you walk down the street. I will say that heading to the conference. Yeah, is it uh, the uh, it's it's an interesting collection. It's got a lot of different. Uh, uh, Full disclosure, I'm an associate, I believe I'm an associate member because of uh, having gotten an award a few years back. So I, I get to wear uh, the, the, the tartan tie once in a while, but I would never wear one of those jackets. My wife would kill me. Uh, and in any case, I can't do the work like you do. Um, it's an interesting collection of people. You've got uh, big names. You've got a guy who's won, uh, you know, the triple crown of the, the Grand Slam of golf three or four times, Jack Nicholas, and then you've got uh, smaller people, so to speak, and big shops, little shops. What are those meetings like? Is there a kind of uh, collaboration? Is it uh, jealousy? You know, you have an annual meeting with the uh, workshop, golf, education, and so on. What's the, the sense of collegiality among architects? And is it anything like the collegiality we find with superintendents? I think it's that and even more. Um, our annual meeting each year is probably the highlight of the year. Um, there are so many friends that I have in the in the ASGCA that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And that was really part of my my speech when I accepted becoming the president is just the camaraderie of our group that we have 100, 180 members, 180 members that are out there, like you say, spread out throughout North America. And everybody gets together. And I, I explain that it's always funny. Somebody comes to one of our meetings that's never been there and they say, how do you all get along so well? You compete against each other for 360 days out of the year. You come together for five days and you're having a great time. You're playing golf. You're sitting in the bar, having drinks. You're, you're sharing ideas. And that's one of the best parts about being a member too, is you get to listen to other ideas. Um, like I say, Jack Nichols will get up and he'll talk about how he designs a golf course, or what he looks at as a golf course. Gil Hans gets up and says the same thing. They're not afraid to share their experience with the rest of us. And now, um, you know, you say maybe we're an exclusive group, but we've gotten um, better in that regard because we have a new program, a, a Tartan program, where we brought in now architects that are just getting started in the field. Like I said, when I started out 30, 35 years ago, I worked for a firm that had five other architects, and we were able to learn from an ASGCA member. 
And those days are now gone where we don't have that ability. So we're bringing in these TART members, again, guys that are just starting out, just getting maybe a couple of projects and bringing them into our meetings to say, hey, here's 180 of us that you can try and learn from. And there's a lot of us that are hiring them to do smaller projects or help them out with projects because they don't have the staff anymore to do this. So it's allowed them to grow. And we have about 20 of 20 TART members. We've had about four or five, five or six that have elevated from a TARTAN member to become a, a TARTAN participant, to become a regular member now of the ASGCA. So it's kind of been a win-win. It goes back to our um, founding fathers when they developed this. They said they wanted to um, enhance and, and advance the profession of golf course architecture. And that's what we've kind of gone back to because of the smaller firms to say, we need to help out younger people and get them involved in the profession like you said how do you get started in it and a lot of these they just a lot of these guys that are out there are just starting to do it again they don't have maybe again somebody to learn from and now they're able to to learn from some of us so it's it's grown that way and like i said um, it's amazing that our members are just willing to share their expertise with some of these these newer newer participants yeah, it's interesting because it reflects a really dramatic change in the industry. It's a subtle one, and um, it has to do with the, uh, you mentioned earlier, the, the big design houses. You know, some of them had 20, 25 people on staff. Now they're down to three or four. You're, I guess, a solo operation. Many are. Uh, and uh, as the workload changes, there's a lot more intermediate scale work so that what I've noticed is the whole model of design build has infiltrated the industry, whereas the, the formal model when you got in and the basis on which you were judged for membership was how detailed a set of plans could you come up with that would be delivered to the contractor and they would build it and you would supervise or observe or you know edit as you went. Nowadays, there's a kind of intermediate function going on where the architect has kind of in-house shapers or people he likes to work with who are not fully employed by the contract, the big contracting companies, you know, the McDonald's and Sons and the uh, the Wadsworth and the Landscapes Unlimited, all these smaller firms. And so there's a lot of intermediate and some of those people uh, through experience or maybe higher expectations have thought of themselves as architects. So the field is not quite as easily divided between an architect and a builder nowadays, that the whole design shaping came out of Pete Dye and Cor Crenshaw and Tom Doak and Gil Hans. And so you're dealing with those and now they're, you're welcoming them in uh, or at least uh, considering them uh, for, for qualifications for membership. And uh, that's that is a big correct. That, Yes, yes, that, that is a change. And um, that kind of started about five or six years ago when we started looking at that. When I came in again, 35 years ago, I think it was the qualifications. I had to have five new golf courses built in the last three years or something like that. Yeah. And we were able to do that. And then, you know, then to advance up again, you need another three new golf courses over a period of three years. But we were doing that in the mid 90s. So so it was able to uh, take place. And then we saw obviously the drop off. And yes, then we've said, hey, we need to relook at this. Um, you know, there's a lot of great architects that are doing great work renovating golf courses and doing that type of work that we need to look at that as um, a qualification as well as what can we look at from 
from redesigning a golf course because that's really was the bulk of the work. And then you're right, then it evolved into, okay, some of these guys are doing their own shaping and they're not sending the plans out for bid. They're not doing a, you know, as detailed set of plans as um, I do because that's how, the way I was brought up and that's the way I learned. But they're still producing great products that are out there. And we've kind of gotten more away from how do you get to that work to what is your body of work? What are you putting together? And, and you know, again, are you able to, to produce the work and do the work that we're looking at? And it might be different than the way I do it, but you're presenting to your clients and you're telling them this is the way I'm going to do it. And these are past projects that I've done and this is how it gets accomplished. And they're hiring them and they're saying, yes, it's great. And, and let's do it that way. And it, it, and it is a different way of doing it. And, you know, I don't know if I could do it that way. You know, when I look at it, I don't know if I could just go out and do green sketches and have somebody build it off of that because I learned doing more planning and more doing it more on the plans. So it's just, again, it's a different way and we've all adjusted to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're obviously the work differs in scale, but everybody's got to produce a budget at some point. You have to have volumes. Uh, maybe what you do is you farm out the, the estimates to a potential uh, contractors and have them do a rough preliminary estimate based on volumes. But uh, I guess the, the issue for superintendents at least is when you're uh, facing an issue of who to hire, uh, it's not your, just your decision. Sometimes they're municipal uh, bid processes that are pretty complicated what should a superintendent be looking for in an architect how do you how does a superintendent judge someone uh how would they go about it um that's probably a difficult question because I, I wonder what they're thinking sometimes when when they do hire me or when they don't hire me i guess i'd like to like to sometimes know but i've always been afraid to ask them why didn't you hire me on this project um, but I think from them, and, and it kind of goes both ways. I think it's no different than when you go out sometimes, you know, if you're interviewing for a job is yes, you're trying to showcase yourself to, to them to say, yes, I'm the right person for, for you. And same with the, the person that's interviewing you, interviewing you, you want to make sure that they're the right person working with you. And I think it's kind of that a little bit of that give and take as far as, are we going to get along together? Can we listen to each other? Can, you know, is it going to be somebody again that's going to come in as especially as a superintendent you know unless you're open to it do you want somebody to come in and say i'm going to build your golf course this way and this is the way you have to maintain it and this is what you have to do i don't know if you know i don't go in i always say i don't go into a superintendent and tell them how to maintain their golf course because i don't want them to tell me how to design it at the same time you know i'm you're hiring me for my expertise and i'm relying on you for your expertise because we both have different roles but it's the combination of both of us that's going to make the project successful in that regard. And if one of us fails on our, our end, um, then it could make the other one look bad as well. So it's kind of, you know, I think it just goes into that relationship. I think it's building that relationship between each other and getting, again, that kind of trust and say, hey, I can reach out to you and I can tell you, um, especially on there, and I don't mind them looking at at talking to me and say, yeah, I don't think we should do something here because there's there's something that's something that just isn't going to work or it might not work with me from a maintenance standpoint. And I don't have a problem saying, okay, let's try and do something different. You know, maybe it doesn't become a sand bunker, maybe it becomes a grass hollow or something like that because it's a little bit easier for them. Yeah, it's it's well, the analogy is a disaster, but it's kind of like dating, I guess. Although I, I can't <laughs> right, remember, yeah. I can't remember what it's like, and God forbid I ever have to do it again. But <laughs> uh, 
you know, you want to basically determine, is this someone I want to work with for the next 15, 20 years? Uh, can I learn from this person? Can I feel free to express myself? Obviously, there are technical uh, uh, basics that have to be fulfilled. Like, can you can you draw this out? Can you map it out? Can you budget it out? Can you confidently uh, schedule it? All that stuff. But beyond that, it's also that kind of intangible uh whether you whether you like the person who want to work with them i guess that's part of it anyway that's a big part that is because you like you say you're going to end up working with this person i mean who knows i mean i've worked with some 10 15 years where you're working with them on, on different projects so it like you say it does get into that where you're working with them that long where it is that trust back and forth it's that hey i can reach out to you and say hey we have something that we want to look at would you look at it and, you know, they have to trust me, obviously, that I'm going to tell them, you know, no, maybe you shouldn't do that. And there's been a lot of times where that's happened, where it's like, no, I don't think that's a smart idea to to do something, whether it be a you know bunker or even tree planting. Tree planting has been, you know, one that we haven't seen as much of it lately. But when they go out, oh, we want to put a tree here. And I look at it and say, that's not a good idea. And this is why. And I'll explain my my reasons why. And, you know, the superintendent might be there as well saying, yes, I, you know, we shouldn't put a tree there in that regard as well. Um, it just, again, it's looking at the land, you know, we look at it and say, you know, there's, again, when we look at drainage, irrigation, you know, water on, water off, as we always say, in regard, people say, oh, we want to put a bunker here. I said, well, you can't put a bunker there because that's where all your water is draining down from from the other golf hole and it just won't work. So there are just certain aspects of it, uh, again, getting to know each other. And that's why when you go into a planning project, just starting out, I always tell them it's going to take three to four months before we even get a plan basically put together because that first month is basically us learning from each other and talking and gathering information from each other as far as what do we want to do on the golf course before we even put the pencil onto the paper and say, this is how we're going to attack it then. Yeah. I don't know what your balance of work is between the, let's say daily fee and private and municipal. Would you have a rough estimate? Uh, it's, it's almost a third all the way across the board, to be honest. Um, in terms of municipal golf, has that relationship or the complexities, you know, obviously there's a bid process that has to be fairly uh, strictly adhered to. And, um, has that changed over the years for you in terms of budgets or who's involved or whether non-golfers get involved in, in those issues for you? Uh, it hasn't changed too much over there. I mean, you're always working, obviously you work at the beginning with the, you're working with the superintendent that's on the golf course. And obviously they have to go to their commissioners or, or, or their people that are involved as well. Um, the budgeting maybe is, is a little bit, you're working more towards, towards the budgeting with them. That's a little different than it would be from a private standpoint, as far as working with um, the board and then going for a club membership vote and those types of things when you're working on the private end. From the municipal end, you're working with the, more of the commissioners and getting that approved and they're going to look at it. And then you might do a public meeting where the public can come out and talk about mm -hmm. it and, and and look at it as that, as that regard. Um, you know, sometimes some of the easier ones are just your your local um, daily fee golf courses that are owned by one person. And they're the ones that are making the decision. And then you just have you, the superintendent and the owner, and you're the ones that are making the decision out there. And, you know, sometimes those projects are, again, different as well. 
but and then it's the owner that's going to say okay yeah i'm willing to spend the money because it's it's their money at the same time uh, it's often thought i don't know if this is the case and i'm sure you discuss this with your colleagues do uh when you're designing for a public sector particularly a municipal do you ever uh, kind of I, for want of a better word, dumb down the design or make it more accessible? Or how is that a consideration in terms of who's playing or uh, yeah, yeah, who's playing the golf course? Is that an issue for you guys? Well, not an issue, just a different consideration to take into, into advance on, on the golf course um, where you're looking at, okay, how can we look at something to, um, yes, you're trying to get um, from municipal golf course, you're looking at everybody from the beginning to the junior to you know, to the scratch golfer because you want them to come out and play your golf course as well. Um, you're trying to just make it a little bit more accessible for them maybe sometimes to get around the golf course in that regard. Um, working with maybe a private club or other, you know, daily fee or, or those types, you're still looking at trying to gather the biggest audience that you can. So again, we're still looking at a Yes, you do, you know, from a private club, yes, you want the members to bring their kids out and for their kids to enjoy the golf course. And the big change that's taken place there, and one thing that I've worked on with a lot of clubs is, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about rolling back the golf ball and everything, but just in the past five years, I've already been building tees that are forward out into the golf course just because there's been more yeah. acceptance to that, to have that be, um, get the younger people, get newer people out to play the golf course. So that's already been been growing before they even, you know, we've been put into place to, with the golf ball or anything like that. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, we don't really dumb it down. We still want to create an attractive golf course. We still want a golfer to come out and enjoy the golf course and, and be able to say, yes, this is kind of, you know, their private club for the day. Sometimes people look at it that way as well, where, you know, they're going to spend four or five, five hours out there and we want them to enjoy the golf course and, and make it as much fun as we can. Um, again, it gets into, you know, a lot of it does get down back down to the maintenance of the golf course and what are the, how, how is the staff set up in order to maintain it? And, you know, do we need to have 60 bunkers out there or can we do 40 bunkers and still make the golf course enjoyable, still make it attractive, uh, still make it strategic, but we can just kind of reduce the number of features out there in order to help them again, maintain the golf course. Um, when you bring up, I got to ask you about the rollback uh, because <laughs> you are now. Up, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's like in a jury trial when you testify. As soon as you bring something up that you shouldn't have brought up, the attorney is going to jump all over you. So here we go. <laughs> no, that's all right. Uh, you're now the official spokesman of the of one of the distinguished golf associations, trade associations, the ASGCA. Has the ASGCA been had the ASGCA been consulted in the negotiations over the proposed rollback by the USGA and the RNA, and has the ASGCA taken a position on that? We have been working with the USGA for for a number of years. Um, you know, we knew that you know it was no secret again that they had been looking at the golf. I mean, I think they've been looking at it for, I don't know, probably 10 years or so. It just seems yeah. like it's always been an ongoing topic and we have been working with them on it more from the standpoint of, okay, when we're designing a golf course, you know, how much land is, are we taking up? What are we, what are we using? And I think Pete Dye once famously said, yeah, I'll do an 8,000 yard golf course. And if they ask me to do a 9,000 yard golf course, I'll do one of those as well. If that's what, you know, if that's where, where it's heading to um, as far as that. Um, so we've worked with them in that regard. And um, 
as a group and and just me individually, um, I think it's it's a good it's something that needed to be handled at some point. And again, it's kind of been a little bit kicked down the road for a long time. I think just trying to figure out what is the best way to do it and how can we how can we handle this and how can we um, make it work. Um, is it going to change my the way I design a golf course? No, I don't think it's going to change the way I design a golf course. If the rollback happens, is it going to change the way I play a golf course? I don't think it's going to change the way I, I play the game. Um, you know, they're talking about somebody, you know, 95 mile an hour swing speed, they might lose five yards off of their tee shot. You know, you could lose five yards off of your tee shot if you hit into a hill or if you're going downhill, you could gain five yards pretty easy. So um, from a I think from a golfer standpoint, I think it's going to be something that um, I, in my opinion, I think it's just going to be a little bit minimal as far as what the impacts might be um, from an average golfer and how I'm going to design a golf course. In terms of resource sustainability, economics, uh, what's the long-term reasoning for, you know, we're not going to get into the, the mechanics of this particular proposal so much as what what is the aspiration behind it in terms of sustainability and um and 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 irrigation and space and labor and all that um what's the long term uh, i think goal? hopefully the long term is as newer golf courses are going to be built and this might be really where it impacts the the bet the greatest is with the newer golf courses that are being built because they might not need to go, you know, when I started again, we were building golf courses on 150, maybe 200 acres at the most. And now you're looking at 250 acres or more, more that you're going to look at when we're designing these, you know, bigger golf courses, because we all, we talked about, and that's what we talked about with the USGA. Yes. Yeah, so and people are hitting the ball further, but they're not always hitting it further straight. They're hitting it further, right, further left. So yes, we need more width that's out there. We're trying to, um, gain more width in order to try and provide as safe a corridors as we can out on a golf course. And then, um, so again, that width evolves into more land, more land, you know, then we want, you know, do you want to irrigate it also? Are we using more irrigation? Are we using more water? So we've been working with, you know, turf reductions already. And how can we, when we're redesigning or putting in a new irrigation system, where can we reduce maintained turf or reduced irrigated turf in that regard? Uh, so we have been working with that as well. So I think it's just going to be a, it's going to help in the future for these newer golf courses that they're not going to have to take up hopefully as much land. You know, what's already out there is out there. We're not going to be able to change that in a, in a way. So um, it's just going to be going forward with any newer projects. Yeah, it's kind of a curious thing where so much of the uh, reaction has been about, well, it's going to knock off, it's going to make every hole seven yards longer if you combine the tee shot and the, and the approach. Uh, rather than the more ecological, economic, and uh, yeah, geography component of it, uh, which really is what's driving it. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on obsolescence of certain older courses, like St. Andrews or so. But to me, the real driving force has been, uh, what, you know, they're not making any more land. That's for sure. So uh, wherever right. these golf courses go, they're going to have to squeeze into something, and it's particularly with real estate. And I don't know if you've seen this or your colleagues have. I get the sense there are more and more lawsuits now about wayward shots uh, into housing and impact of the relationship between the surrounds and the golf course itself. And it's probably a whole new growth business in terms of expert witness testimony and safety, actually. Um, oh, 
we see we see a little bit of of that. Um, I don't know if it's I don't think it's grown much in the just because you know once the golf ball you know might have grown earlier you know through the you know late nineties early two thousands when the golf ball when there was this big jump, yeah. but obviously it has kind of tapered off. But yes, when you're looking at you know when I started out again thirty five years ago, we were designing three hundred foot corridors through housing projects. And now if you're going to go out and do that, you're probably looking at four to 500 feet is what you'd want to tell somebody is what we'd look at from that standpoint. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Sometimes, I mean, you go out and you look at, you play an old 1920s golf course that has a tee right next to a green. And I always think, boy, it'd be great if I could design that nowadays, but you just can't do it because you know, somebody's going to point the finger at you and say, you can't put it that close. It's like, well, why not? They did, you know, a hundred years ago, they were doing it. Why can't we now? But it's just the realities of what it is. Well, that golf course, when they built it, was doing 6,000 rounds. And now it's doing 22,000 rounds. And the golf ball was flying maybe 180, 200. And now it's flying, you know, who knows what. Uh, so right. it's, the whole envelope has gotten more compacted, if you will. But um, Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I well, can say, I, I think, I think even, I, I think I, I might've saw, and I don't know if it was Mike Juan that had said regarding, you know, bringing back older co courses. He doesn't know if that, you know, this wasn't the goal. It wasn't the goal. I don't think to try and do that. And I think somebody else had stated, yes, they, you know, from the pro aspect, they might lose 10 or 15 yards when this implements, but these young kids, they're kind of probably going to gain that back in the next five years because they're just going to keep getting better at hitting the golf ball. It's like anything, any other sport out there, the more you do it and the more technology we have to get better, they just get so much better with it. Yeah. Well, there's a swing mechanics guy, Sasha McKenzie, I think his name is up in Toronto, who's already figured out how to get everybody on tour another six miles an hour of swing speed. So that'll compensate <laughs> for the difference. <laughs> exactly. Some, yep. Yeah. Who knows? We might have this conversation again in another 20 years. Uh I hope we do because uh, <laughs> that would be means we're still in the business 20 years from now. Uh, Mike Benkuski, Mike Benkuski, president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time here on the TurfNet Renovation Report. And again, thanking our sponsors, uh, the Andersons Golf Preservations and Capillary Flow. 